Look, the world has gone after him. That's what the Pharisees said to each other. Now, coming from one of the disciples, such a statement would be something to shout from the rooftops, an occasion for great joy. But coming from the Pharisees, it sounds somehow a more ominous note. Near the end of the 11th chapter of John's Gospel, we hear Caiaphas the high priest exercise his cruel wisdom by declaring that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. And this was said in response to the surge of support for Jesus following his raising of Lazarus from the dead. What should be done about this upstart who's creating so much trouble? Kill him, said Caiaphas, though in the more delicate diction of the political class. Better for one to die than for all to die. Sometime later, Jesus entered Jerusalem. And the crowds went wild. And so John, in verse 19 of chapter 12, tells us that the Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Their meaning is clear. You see that we now have no choice. There's nothing we can do except eliminate this man. His popularity continues to grow, and with that popularity comes political unrest. And with those two Ps, there comes a T, and that stands for trouble, you bet, right here in David's city. And so you can see, they said to one another, there really is no other choice because the world has gone after him. And as if to prove them right, John tells us that some Greeks came looking for Jesus. These Greeks were in town for the Passover celebration, and so we can assume that they were converts to Judaism on pilgrimage. Now, why they went to see Jesus, we don't know. Perhaps uh, he was simply a side trip, the latest roadside attraction. Perhaps they'd heard of this popular, popular young rabbi and wanted his autograph or a good anecdote to take home with them. No matter the reason, John tells us that the Greeks came to Philip and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, Philip, his Greek name notwithstanding, was a good and devout Jew, and as such likely had very little prior contact with Gentiles of any kind even those who had converted to Judaism. He didn't know what to say. So he went to his friend Andrew and asked Andrew for advice. And Andrew, being a wise man, said, I don't know. Let's go ask Jesus. And so that's what they did. And Jesus responded with a prophecy and a story. And the prophecy went like this. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. These words of Jesus mark the beginning of the last public discourse in John's rendition of the gospel story. And it seems... Fitting that these last public words come in response to a visit from some Greeks, because with the coming of the Greeks and with Jesus' words in response to their coming, it is clear that whatever happens next is going to have implications not just for Jews, but for the whole world. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now that prophecy sounds pretty good in and of itself. Jesus had just come riding into town on the, to the cheers of the crowds, and obviously even the Greeks had taken notice of this young teacher the culminating event of years of prophecy was perhaps about to come to pass. The ancient messianic hope was maybe about to be fulfilled. Jesus would be glorified and raised to his rightful throne as David's heir and recognized as God's anointed king. At least that's what that first sentence seemed to imply. But then Jesus told a story, and it was a rather gloomy story, and what was worse, it was a story with a moral, and not some easy moral, like it takes two to tango or a stitch in time saves nine. This was another one of those heavy morals that tended to bring the disciples down. This moral was about sacrifice and death. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
And with those words, the disciples' fleeting hopes up and fled. Whatever was coming, whatever Jesus was talking about, didn't sound all that good after all. The disciples saw Jesus with human eyes, which makes sense since those were the eyes they had. When they looked at Jesus, they saw a man blessed by the Spirit of God, a man anointed by God to preach and to teach and to heal and finally to lead the people of God to victory over those who oppressed them. And the crowds looked at Jesus the same way. They saw a charismatic figure, a prophet, a political leader with revolution in his heart. The crowd saw Jesus as a gifted human being who could, with their support and encouragement, perhaps lead them to victory and to a new and glorious future. But, Jesus said, whatever glory is to come is going to look different than you expect. Take the grain of wheat. It's useful. It's good. It's valuable. By itself, it's enough to feed a bird or a mouse, and small things need to eat. This grain of wheat serves them. Still, by itself, it cannot do more than that. But take this single grain of wheat and bury it as if it were dead. And what happens? Up from the ground, up from the place where you buried it, will come a tall stalk full of new grains of wheat, full of fruit, full of life, enough to feed a multitude. But in order for that single grain to produce so much life, it first needs to be buried and left in the ground as if it were dead. And so comes the moral. Do you hold on to that single grain of wheat and protect it from all harm? Do you hide it away? Do you keep it secret, keep it safe? If you do, it'll eventually spoil, rot, dry up altogether, or be eaten by that bird or mouse. Or do you take that single grain of wheat and give it over to God? Do you take that precious thing and bury it under the earth as if it were dead? In other words, to make the point more plain, those who love their life will lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for my sake. Love it, keep it, hide it away, protect it, mistake the single grain for the whole stalk, mistake this life for all their, the life there is, and you will lose it. Or hate it, bury it, give it up for dead, and trust it to God who gave it to you in the first place, and so keep that life forever. Now, one wonders what those poor innocent Greeks thought by now. Jesus had offered them a brief science lesson and then an even deeper and more important lesson about the nature of life, the universe, and everything. Grains need to be buried if they are to bear fruit, and you must give up your life if you're to have any hope of keeping it. Now, these seem like contradictions, and I suppose in human terms they are, because what Jesus seemed to be saying, if the Greeks and the disciples and we are hearing him right, was that they needed to die if they really wanted to live. That's what it will mean to follow me, Jesus said. If you're going to serve me, then you'll have to follow me no matter where I go. And where I'm going is right on into the valley of the shadow of death, into the heart of darkness, into the belly of the earth itself, where we put dead things. Will you follow me there? If you do, God will bless you. And I don't know about you, but I can feel the alarm growing in these poor Greeks. Whatever they were expecting, it probably wasn't this sad-faced man bidding them to come and die. And poor Andrew and Philip, poor us too. I mean, you never get used to this stuff. So much sorrow, so much suffering, so little hope in the world around us. Can't we please just turn the page to where the stone is rolled away? That part about being glorified, that, that sounded pretty good. That's the kind of thing that can make the disciples get out of bed in the morning kind of thing that got the crowds excited and 
even drew the occasional tourist looking for something exotic to talk about on the way home. But this, the Greeks, the disciples, and yes, I think we too want to hear that first sentence again. We never grow tired of that. Glorified sounds, well, pretty glorious. But nobody really wants to hear what comes after. Nobody wants to think about how that glorification comes about, what it would look like. All that dying and saving language is confusing at best and downright scary at worst. And it gets even scarier because, well, so scary that Jesus himself is troubled. Now my soul is troubled, Jesus said. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. I'd like us to just sit with that question for just, just a moment. I'd like us to hear its pathos. I'd like us to feel its weight. I'd like us to abide with the one asking that question. Father, save me from this hour. A question that I think many of us are asking. Now my soul is troubled, Jesus said. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Even Jesus didn't like to hear what he was saying. Even Jesus wanted to run to the one he called Father and beg to be released from what was to come, to save him from the suffering to come. Jesus knew what those words meant. He knew the sorrow behind the glory, even if no one else really did. And we, from our vantage point 2,000 years later, we also know what they meant. Jesus was going to suffer. He was going to be put to death. He was going to be buried. And even though he knew it was coming, Jesus placed his life in the hands of the God who sent him. Into God's hands, Jesus entrusted his life like a single grain of wheat to be buried in the earth. Jesus counted on God to see to it that from that burial, from his death, new and abundant life would come. Blessing would come. Salvation would come. Glory would come. Then God spoke. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. And some standing nearby thought they heard thunder. And others heard an angel's voice. But Jesus told them that what they had heard was a voice from heaven speaking for their benefit to reassure them or convince them or convict them or maybe even to lock this moment forever in their hearts, a moment in which all the world's sorrow and the glory of heaven came together. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. Something big is coming. Something big is coming. Something earth-shattering is about to happen. Something so big it requires God's own voice to announce its coming. So remember what you hear on this day. Remember what you heard from heaven. Remember this moment when the day of judgment comes. And remember that even on that day, God's name is glorified. Well, now it seems to me the crowd may well have been back with Jesus um, because talk of judgment perhaps stirred those old revolutionary feelings again. After all, who was the ruler of the world? It was Caesar, right? Caesar was about to be sent packing. And we all know who's going to take Caesar's place, right? Messiah, God's anointed one, who will restore Israel to its rightful place among the nations. Yes, Jesus, we get you now. 
All that confusing talk about being buried and bearing fruit and losing and keeping was just some, some kind of coded language, right? No wonder we didn't get it. But this, driving out the ruler of the earth, that sounds good. That makes sense. That sounds right. We get that. But they didn't get it. They were wrong again. And they'd keep on being wrong all the way to the very end and then three days beyond that. For right on the heels of what might have sounded like revolutionary talk, Jesus again revealed the truth of what it would mean for him to be glorified. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John can't help himself but intrudes on the narrative to let us know what this means. He wants to make sure that we get it, even if the disciples and the Greeks did not. John writes that Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. I keep thinking about those poor Greeks. I mean, what were they thinking by this point? Well, actually, by this point, they seem to have vanished altogether from the story, having served John's purpose of making plain that what Jesus was about to do would be for the whole world and not just for Israel. The Greeks kind of conveniently go away. The poor disciples remain confused and unaware of what Jesus was saying. And we pity them in their ignorance, knowing how soon it is going to be shattered leaving them to piece together all these little details, the voice of Jesus, the voice from heaven, those cryptic words and stories which later seem so portentous, but in the moment seem just kind of vaguely ominous, like a thundercloud off in the distance. But we, 2,000 years later, we know all too well what Jesus meant, or at least enough to know that he was talking about his own death. Jesus would be lifted up, but not on the shoulders of the crowd or on the back of a war horse, but on a cross. Jesus would be glorified, not in the victory of a rebel army, but in death and burial. Jesus would create a kingdom, but not by amassing weapons and gathering an army, but instead by giving his life over to the will of God. Jesus would die, and Jesus would come rising up from the ground and bursting with life enough for the whole world. We know from our vantage point that what Jesus was talking about was losing his life in order to save ours. We know that Jesus was calling his disciples to follow his lead and to also give up their lives and so save them. We hear, too, the whisper of a promise, the whisper of a promise, a voice coming from somewhere on the other side of suffering, promising that what will come from death and burial will be a blessing more powerful than anything we can imagine. New and abundant life, the very promise of God, made at the beginning of history to redeem the whole world. It strikes me as being especially appropriate that we find ourselves standing somewhere between the glory and the cross on this fifth Sunday of Lent. The suffering experienced by much of the world, much of the time, is much more apparent to us these days as we live with an anxiety that is new for many of us. Budgets are tighter and prospects are bleaker, hopes seem smaller these days. Friends and neighbors and sisters and brothers have lost their jobs or had their hours reduced or seen their retirements shrink. The news is filled with the high-pitched whine of government working overtime and the yelping of pundits from all directions and the spectacle of a senator playing the queen of hearts and screaming off with their heads. Some say things will get better. Some say things will get worse. Some say things will get worse before they get better and some question the wisdom of the whole project. 
Jesus' call to hate one's own life, to give it up, resonates, I think, in an alarming way with our present economic circumstance. Though these days one has the feeling that such giving up may not be the voluntary act we wish it would be. In economic circumstances like ours, the giving up is often forced upon us, whether we are employers or employees, producers or consumers, Everyone is touched by this, and that touch is painful. The economic empire is shaking, and we are shaking with it, not least because that shaking has revealed just how tangled up in that empire we really are. There's a sense of reckoning in the air, and I really, really desperately wish it were not so. Because like everybody else, I hope the government can set things right and, and relieve the pain caused by this economy. Like everyone else, I worry about how we're going to support each other in hard times and wonder how much our commitment to each other is going to be tested. Like everyone else, I find myself uncomfortably aware of just how much trust I have placed in wealth and brains and power and how fearful I am when it seems like all those safety nets are fraying. I find myself frozen in place, unsure how to pray, and doing my best, quite honestly, to just not think about it at all. I received an email from Rob Davis some time ago. Rob and his family were members of this congregation uh, just a few years ago and they continue to stay in touch with life here at East Chestnut Street. <clears throat> and Rob's email was a pastoral letter uh, in a couple of different ways. First of all, it was sent to all of Rob's pastors, um, past and present, so it was a pastoral letter. And it was also a pastoral word to us pastors. Now I confess that I only just responded to Rob's email yesterday because I couldn't figure out what to say. Because Rob's email hit me like a bucket of ice water, you know, the kind of thing that can make you gasp but may also return you to your right mind. The kind of whack upside the head that I think the disciples must have experienced every time Jesus spoke about hard things like death and suffering and glory that comes only after those two deep valleys have been negotiated. I want to share a bit of Rob's email with you. Um, it's addressed to all his former pastors and preachers and calls us to a kind of pro prophetic proclamation that I confess makes me very, very anxious. And yet I found myself drawn to his email as I was writing this sermon and reflecting on what Jesus said to his disciples and to us about the need to let go, to give up, to hand our lives over to God if we want to have any hope of saving them. This is part of what Rob had to say to his pastors. And so as we walk towards the cross, the crux in this season, a season full of doubt, uncertainty, and fear, my exhortation to you, my pastors, is to embrace this weakness and to publicly acknowledge that we have no solutions, we have no grand plans, we have no power to affect the kind of change that the world is clamoring for. What we have is weakness. And in that weakness, we have hope that the Christ will powerfully use our humble obedience to accomplish his kingdom purposes in our midst. Jacques Ellul, in Money and Power, makes it clear that mammon is one of the powers that Jesus defeated at the cross. My exhortation to you is, therefore, that you not encourage people to trust God until the economy turns around, nor that you seek to help people hunker down until the storm blows over. Rather, I encourage you to help those in your congregation to meditate on a theology of weakness, that your, our trust in your, our own power might come to an end and that God might reveal God's power in us. I encourage you to help them envision not some ideal economic order nor a return to the status quo of the business cycle, but a way of walking each day in generosity 
an open hand in a time of testing. You can enable their liberation from the false promises of a modern economic system that has promised but failed to deliver as it must, security, comfort, or a better life. End quote. In my response to Rob, I confess that my own pastoral instincts run in the opposite direction of such preaching. I confess to a preference for the soft word, the word of comfort and peace and hope for a return of something like normalcy. Had those Greeks come to me, I'd have told them about heaven and the benefits of being on the right side of history and the wisdom and power of Jesus' teaching. Never mind the suffering, the pain, the dying, and the being buried. They're just too hard. They're too harsh. They're just too much altogether. And I'd like to think that I would have told them those things and avoid the hard bits out of something more than just cowardice or a seeker-sensitive marketing strategy, that I would have been motivated, too, by a desire to be pastoral, to be shepherd-like, to soothe the wounds and ease the pains and not do anything that would make them feel worse or lose hope or turn away because the path was just too hard, to focus my attention on the risen and glorified one, and to move quickly past the cross and the grave and the empire that serves both, that same empire whose systems have too often stolen our hearts and gained our trust and then left us bereft and wondering how to pray and what to pray and to whom to direct those prayers. But what if Jesus is right? And all of our trust in the empire, all of our trust in human wisdom, ingenuity, perseverance, all of our trust in ourselves, what if all of that is for naught? What if I scramble to fix the motor and get the economic engine running smoothly again? What if that's just another form of what Jesus called loving our life? I mean, what if Rob is right in our present circumstances, in fact, an opportunity to hear clearly and perhaps even for the first time the radical call of Jesus to let it all go, to place our lives in God's hands, to give ourselves over to death and the grave, to follow Jesus right to the cross and meet our fate there with him? What if our only hope is the weakness of the cross? What if our only hope is the scandal of the cross? What if our only hope is the foolishness and irresponsibility of the cross? What if this is not the time for praying that the empire or the economy or even the Mennonite church gets restored to its former strength and its place as our support and stay in trouble, but is instead the time to, for praying that God's will be done and God's name be glorified and that we will have the strength to drink the cup and so trust that through this way and this way only comes life and glory and the redemption of all things. This is not a call to abandon all hope or to abandon all responsibility. This is not about turning our backs and walking away from whatever destruction is to come. Even now, we continue to serve one another and serve the world, to offer whatever help we can, material and otherwise, to brothers and sisters who are suffering, and to do what we can to mitigate the suffering of our neighbors and those most vulnerable among us. This is not a call to sit back and let Rome burn and everyone with it. But it is a call, I think. It's a call to reorientation, to remember where our trust belongs, to remember who we serve, and his call to lay down our feeble and feverish attempts to redeem ourselves, to save ourselves, to rescue ourselves, to preserve our own lives and our own well-being. And in the process of laying those things down, in the process of entrusting ourselves once again to the loving hands of the God who made us, 
in the process of taking up our crosses and following after Jesus, in that process to be saved. We cannot do any of this alone. Nor are we meant to. God has called us to be a people. God has called us to be a congregation. God has called us to be a community, a band of disciples. And God has promised through Jesus to nurture and guide and inhabit our community. And so give it the strength and the power and the gifts necessary to the business of laying our lives down. And the Holy Spirit has proven over and over and over again in the history of the larger church and in the history of this congregation that what God has promised is in fact true. What we cannot do on our own, we may well do together as the Spirit-inspired and empowered body of Christ. And so on this fifth Sunday of Lent, here between the dying and the glory, may we be drawn to the one who was lifted up for our sake and for the glory of God. Here, in a time of great uncertainty and anxiety and shaking of empire and a shaking of ourselves and our own boots, may we hear anew the call to put our lives in God's hands. May we receive the strength we need to surrender our lives and to count on God to save them. May the whisper, may the whisper of resurrection grow ever louder and the light of God's glory grow ever brighter. And may we follow Jesus. May we follow Jesus, sisters and brothers. May we follow Jesus to Easter, to Easter and beyond. May God make it so. Amen.